some people just forget that there are real humans behind these accounts. I think in a book you're trying to cheat people into having those senses. This launched, you know, eight million quarantine novels. <laughs> yeah. Hello and welcome to the Waterstones podcast. I'm Will Rycroft and in the last episode of season three we're going to be confronting fear. Now, this episode was planned months ago, but has obviously been given a peculiar new resonance by recent events worldwide with the coronavirus pandemic. Because we thought you might appreciate some good book chat at this time, we've created a bumper-length episode in which we'll hear from Julia Ebner about her researches into the world of online extremism and coming face-to-face with neo-Nazis and jihadists for her work on the book Going Dark. We'll look at creating fear in fiction, as Rosamund Lupton shares the inspiration and technique she used in her latest thriller, Three Hours, which sees a school siege play out in real time for the reader. And here in the studio, I was hoping to welcome Jenny Offal, whose new novel, Weather, tackles our fears around climate change, as well as taking in American politics and the opioid crisis too. Of course, coronavirus has put paid to international flights, but the wonders of technology meant that we were still able to speak to each other about fear and anxiety in its many forms, as well as finding a note of hope for the future. So grab a cuppa and settle down for a fascinating chat. Jenny, when I thought I was going to do a podcast about this theme of fear, um, I thought we would be talking very clearly about climate change and about your novel weather, Uh, but... (laughs) We're in very different circumstances already. And in fact, rather than be able to talk face to face, you are stuck in the States. I am stuck at home because of everything that's happening with coronavirus. We have a whole new anxiety to add to the list of anxieties that we have. How are things in America, first of all? I think there is, it's interesting. There is kind of a lag between the people that are taking it really seriously and the people that still haven't come to terms with it. So there's a lot of um, still someone saying, can we, can we meet for a drink before everything shuts down? I mean, I'm, I'm not in New York city, but a friend just asked me today if she should go to her co-op shift uh, at the grocery store. And I said, no, absolutely not. (laughs) Um, I guess I have some um, sort of ill, ill-earned, um, but status as a prepper among my friends. So I'm receiving a lot of a lot of texts and a lot of questions about what people should do. In in weather, there is this, this thing about the anxiety that goes with something like climate change. But actually, before that, there's this sort of onslaught of information. And I feel like, obviously, climate change is something that we've been hearing information about for years and years and years. And it's finally reached a stage where more and more people are having to actually engage with it. Um, And I guess there's been a little bit of that with coronavirus where we've been getting bits of information. And as you say, that thing of just kind of going, well, when it really gets serious, I'll do stuff. But up until then, let's just carry on. Is that just a human reaction, do you think, to sort of things that are terribly serious? It's quite hard to to really engage with them because they're so serious. I think so. And I think that also, you know, our brains are sort of pattern recognition machines. And when we see something that doesn't already fit something we know, we still want to make these mental shortcuts. We want to say, oh, it sounds like a bad flu or, oh, this is like a snow day or something that feels more within the range of what we already know. Yeah. Um, And so I think just accepting that this is actually beyond what we've experienced before and the there's a moment of terror with that, just like there's a moment of terror when you first think about 
the projections for climate change and the climate crisis. But I've found that uh, I think it takes quite a bit of mental energy to suppress what you half know. Mm-hmm. I think it's better to sort of look steadily at something, no matter how frightening it seems coming down the pike, because I think that allows you to sort of eventually turn the dread into action that can make you feel like you have more agency. Because you can become paralyzed slightly. I spoke to Jonathan Safran Foer about his book, We Are the Weather, and he he spoke about when Jan Karski went to speak to Felix Frankfurter, the US Supreme Court Justice, and this was during the terrible things that were happening in Germany in the Second World War. And he told him about the Warsaw Ghetto and about what was happening in the death camps. And this man said, I, I understand what you're telling me, but I, I, I can't believe you because he, he couldn't believe that what was happening was happening. And Jonathan Safranfo was saying that we have a similar thing with the climate, which is that we we cannot get our heads around the idea that we might be beyond a point of saving it or that, that it really is as serious as it is because we can't really see it, even though we have these huge forest fires and things like that happening all the time now, but people still can't quite get their head around it. Uh, it, it you had a similar thing personally with climate change, didn't you? What I wonder what sort of shifted for you where, where you were able to sort of see it for what it was and, and start to do something about it. Um, well, besides having similar names for our books, um, we obviously have done similar research because I actually had that exact story was in weather at one point, but I took yeah. it out after seeing it too many places. Um, <laughs> but I think for me, the beginning point was um, much like climate change itself. It was a bit of a creep, a creeping, slow realization. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a friend who has known about this for years and has talked to me about it for years. Um, But we tended to talk mostly about extinction because my first novel was about that. And she works uh, at the Center for Biodiversity that um, is always using the Endangered Species Act to try to um, save various, various creatures. And it was at a certain point I noticed that it became more and more uh, climate oriented, the things she would say. And I I started to feel this strange sense of, um, I don't even know what the word for it is. I mean, it was something, it was like pre-knowing. Yeah. And for a long time, I was like, I don't know that I want to look into this. Mm. Um, but she would, we have children close in age, and she would occasionally make comments about what things were going to be like. And so... I was already writing a novel that was about what do we do with our our fears that are sort of uh, don't yet have a form. For me at the time, it was about aging and decline. And um, and then one night I decided, I was away for the weekend and I decided that I would uh, read a bunch of scientific papers about where exactly we were <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and about 12 hours later, I was sitting in the middle of my bed shaking because I had realized that um, the timetable was just so much faster than expected and that the models um, that they'd been used were, were too conservative Mm. and that it was indeed going to affect and was already affecting um, many people and would soon affect more of the West. One of the amazing things about weather is that, you know, writing about climate change would probably be enough for for one novelist to sort of deal with in a novel. It's a huge topic, but you somehow also managed to include two of the other 
huge topics in America at the moment, which would be the opioid crisis and indeed the political situation. And I, I'm slightly confused about how you managed to fit all three things into a very <laughs> slim novel and to do so so profoundly in each case, but also without it sort of being, this is a novel about climate change or this is, you know, you, you have a way of, because of your pared down style, which is these very short sentences and paragraphs where it always feels like you've cut all the sort of spare flesh away. So you're left with what's really important. Did that mean that this book had a similar process as Department of Speculation, that you you worked from a much larger text and, and took stuff away until you were left with the essence of the book? I did. Um, the larger text is mostly notes, um, but I, I work on each section. And until about two-thirds of the way through the book, I d- I'm not sure what's going to stay. I did worry a lot that I could not put both um, our... Uh, descent into authoritarianism and climate change uh, into the same book. I had a lot of uh, very hair-pulling moments thinking this was a terrible idea. Um, and, and what I finally realized was that I needed to talk about it not in some sort of uh, from on high position of the social novel or the da-da-da, here's how we live today, but more about how that feelings about all those sort of things uh, came in in a sort of subterranean way underneath the course of daily life. Mm. So I was trying to notice um, how the person at my local store would talk about the election. I knew he was um, an immigrant and I wondered what he would say and he would say various things in passing that were interesting to me. Or I would, um, with the climate change things, I noticed which things got through to me. There'd just be something very quiet like, oh, apples need frost. We're not going to, I live in an apple growing region and reading a projection about that. And so I guess I kept trying to take these very, very large, immense things, so immense that this one uh, philosopher calls them hyper objects like climate change that you can't even Mm. conceive of and just keep bringing them down to uh, a level of recognizability. And that's through observation, is it? That's through sort of watching how other people in your local community are sort of talking about it? Yes. I mean, I did, I did actually spend a lot of time in, in different libraries and, um, and I was really interested in, in listening to, the way librarians were talking to people coming in about their various problems. I noticed uh, about the opioids crisis. I noticed that that at a certain point, I've been working on this book for about six and a half years, uh, mm. that there would be signs for Narcan training, which um, in the library, and you would see an open room where there were people from the community and a first responder and a librarian learning these things. And it had a very, um, it's funny now that we're in a sort of full on apocalyptic moment, these things <laughs> felt, uh, very pre apocalyptic. I don't know else how to say it. Um, yeah. they felt like these intimations of, of things yeah. that were coming. And I, um, you know, I was joking one time with a therapist that I sometimes feel like, like I do, a mirror image of the job she does, which is that for some reason, I always start every novel with um, 
an emotion that is sort of going to be the tenor of the book. And with department, it was loneliness. And it was mm. partly the loneliness before you find someone and the loneliness of depression. But then I expanded it to be about how you can still be lonely even after you have um, joined your life with someone and had uh, just made a life together and and what it meant, you know, those different moments of it. And then with this one, this was this book, Weather is so much about dread and what does it mean to have anticipatory dread and what, if anything, brings us out of that. And so what I was saying to her is that I feel like when someone goes in to see their shrink, they say, oh, they tell a long story and it has all these different details in it and all this kind of um, scenery and props. And then the, the therapist's job is to like extract, that's actually a story about anger. Seems like it's dry cleaning. <laughs> it's really about anger. Or and I feel like I'm like, okay, now we need to add some dry cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we we are laughing about these very serious topics, but that's because your books are incredibly funny. They're just shot through with these little spikes of humor. Because it is quite a spiky humor. Uh, uh, there's one bit that I, I laughed about when I read it, but and then kept sharing it with basically any parent I could find because <laughs> uh she talks about a moment when her child looks at her and says, are you sure you're my mother? Because you don't seem like a good enough person. And she says, you know, I, l- I let him off because he was just a kid. And I- and sure, I only think about it now like two or three times a day. And <laughs> for me, that was just like one of those things where as a parent, where you just, it, that's exactly what parenthood is like. It is, right? I mean, the part where you're yeah. sort of like, oh, that's an offhand comment. And then you're like, wow, it's been two years now. And I still think of that. I wonder if that yeah. is... <laughs> I wonder if they saw me. Yeah. Um, when you're putting that humor into the book, is it just, a, is that a natural reaction to to dealing with these quite big topics? Um, or is that just because that's the kind of writer you are, that, that you can't help but have these sort of jokes punctuating? I, mean, I think in person, uh, I think that just uh, seeing an absurd moment in a situation or cracking a little joke about something is is probably just, one of the ways I've always gotten through, gotten through life. But um, in terms of like thinking of it in a slightly more technical way, I feel like um, I'm always concerned with my novels because they're in first person um, and you're, you're really in someone's head for much of it. I'm always yeah. concerned with ways to kind of keep that from being claustrophobic and let some air in. So one of the reasons that uh I put in different texts and the sound of different texts, like actually write them out sort of in their, in their own language sometimes um, is the same reason I, I, I have jokes and um, little kind of deadpan moments is because I feel like you have to have that emotional range or it feels too one note. I mean, my own experience often is that novels that are explicitly political or explicitly social novels are also deadly earnest. Yeah. Um, and I get it. They're, they're doing, they're, they're tackling very big things, but I don't really feel like that's the only way in. You mentioned sort of jokingly about earlier on about sort of say, you know, what if any way there is out of some of these really quite apocalyptic uh, 
themes that we're dealing with here. And in fact, there's a joke about the uh, the obligatory note of hope that you have to finish on, uh, especially if you're doing a podcast, for example. And I just wondered whether, you know, especially right now with the fact that we're dealing, it's almost as if people have forgotten about climate change for the moment because they're now dealing with the, the next big thing, which is the sort of virus spreading around the world. But I wonder, you know. And what, uh, fair what, enough, you know. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Uh, but I, I sort of wonder, you know, do, do you feel hopeful about obviously these specific things, but do you feel hopeful about the human race and its ability to sort of get over these problems and work together? Uh, are they, uh, is the severity of the problems that we're dealing with now so big that, that it will actually force people to become more united and less divided? Because it, it can feel very divided politically, both in the US and the UK at the moment. Absolutely. Um, in some ways, I think I, I, like a lot of people, I probably, I toggle back and forth between hope and despair. But um, when I was writing Weather, uh, funnily enough, I reread Camus' The Plague. And Mm. one of the things that I found in it um, was a description by the doctor who's valiantly trying to save people of something called active fatalism. And he said that basically it was uh, fumbling forward in the dark, trying to do what's right, um, without knowing whether it will work or not, but knowing that it is right. And yeah. later he says, we don't need heroicism. It may sound strange, but we need decency to stop the plague. And what I'm noticing right now is that with the coronavirus um, crisis, there are so many ways that it is illuminating things that are broken in our, our societies. Um, the fear of if we close the New York City schools, all those kids that are homeless, um, all those kids that depend on eating there, um, elderly people already feeling isolated or lonely being more so by this. We see all these things come through. We see people who don't have any savings and the ways that so many of us live precariously. But not to minimize that in any way, I do feel like there's something, a glimmer I've been noticing um, in the last few days of people acting for the collective good, Um, Mm. whether that is someone who is younger, who says, I can look after the children of the frontline healthcare uh, health, the professionals, or whether it's people checking on their um, neighbors and asking if they can go to the store, whether it's even a store opening with one, a special hour for people uh, who are older, have disabilities to shop more safely. Um, All of these things very much make me feel hopeful because Mm. even though this was a forced situation where we all had to radically change the way we live, um, I do think that when this is all over, and it will be over eventually, we can look back at these kind of pro-social moments and have a map of what it means to think beyond ourselves. And that's, of course, what's needed with the climate emergency. The Blitz, of course, in the UK was a huge thing during the Second World War, and it was supposed to have demoralised people's spirits so much that the UK would effectively give up in the Second World War. And of course, the opposite happened in London, with buildings destroyed around them, people rallied together, children still played football in the street. And in fact, it helped this sort of 
community spirit rise up and, and lead to an even stouter defense of, of the UK during the Second World War. And it sometimes I get that same sense as you did of people starting to rally together and to realize what they can do to really help. And even spaces which recently have become so poisonous, like mm-hmm. Twitter, I've started to see these little hints that people are going back to using Twitter for what it was I guess initially used for people are being funny and creative and helpful and spreading messages of positivity and it's almost like we're rediscovering perhaps our our better nature because our back is against the wall. I think so and I think that you know um, there's really a myth that people automatically act terribly during times of trouble and that that they panic and they are out for themselves Um, and actually that's not what disaster psychology has found. Um, Mm. It's found actually that it's very important to people to know that there is something they can do. And that may first play out as, um, you know, preparing their own group or family. But at a certain point, it becomes more outwardly oriented. And there's a feeling of, okay, I'm going to cut my neighbor's grass because they're not coming outside. Or I'm going to... um, I mean, already I find my mind all the time thinking of like, can I leave food or or surprises? I found some wrapping paper the other day and I thought I'm going to wrap things up as presents. And once I figure out how I can leave them, I can leave them on people's porches and they can mm. wait three days to open them. Um, <laughs> and just all these little moments, I do feel like, you know, I've never wanted to join Twitter more than now because I look <laughs> on it and I'm like, oh my gosh, I just saw someone there's so many funny things on it right now. And there are also so many, I've become kind of an uh, epidemiology Twitter nerd. <laughs> I'm reading <laughs> a lot of that, um, which seems like a very, uh, was probably a very small category and now it's gotten much bigger. But I do think that, um, yes, we, humans have always survived by, by not individually, but uh, collectively by banding together. And, when we're on the other side of this, um, I think we can look at it as an interesting social experiment that can be studied for what it is that makes people able to sacrifice for the collective good and also what it is that makes people um, find joy in a slower-paced life. Mm. Um, Because I don't know about you, but we did some uh, serious reorganization yesterday and every single like art kit we found or whatever, we were like filled (laughs) with exhilaration. Like, okay, (laughs) we will be doing the Star Wars crochet kit that someone gave us (laughs) many years ago. I think there's going to be a lot more, yeah, home crafting. Yes, very uh, bad. Do you have, I don't know if you have this, but uh, Etsy is uh there's a, oh, yeah. there's a version of etsy called um regretsy which is really bad craft <laughs> projects and i feel like there should be a special quarantine edition that will just be like the crafts the crafts that the parents like me who are extremely uncrafty and unhandy have have made with their children that is something i can definitely sign up for definitely <laughs> Jenny, you have provided exactly the right note of hope that I was hoping for there. Um, it's really great to speak to you about about weather and about department speculation. I suppose you've probably got your ears open listening for, for the next thing that you'll be writing. Um, <laughs> do you have any hint of what that might be? Um, well, of course, uh, 
in the the category of problems, this is a very small one indeed. But it does occur to me that it's very strange to be have my antenna up, noticing all these unusual things going on, and also everyone else in the world is also paying attention to them. Yeah. So I don't know what it will be about, but um, I'm I'm more and more interested in ideas of 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 care and how we take care of each other um, mm. during different moments in life and what it means to look at that in both the not with that sort of false overlay of like of course of course we take care of each other but what it really means what that action means and that responsibility means um and where there is you know dark humor in it and and where there is um every other range of emotions so i don't know what it'll be exactly but uh i just know that i started in August with my parents living down the road and I've had some hospital adventures and various things since. So I'm thinking a lot about that, what, what that sort of means to me. You're, you will be competing of course, with all of the really terrible first novels that people will be writing now that they're all stuck in self-isolation. Oh my God. So. The part where like this launched, you know, 8 million quarantine novels. <laughs> yeah. As a writing teacher, I will certainly be, um, be seeing some of that. Uh, so, um, but yeah, you know, I think go for it. I think that I, I have my own little note that I have titled journal of a plague year. Hopefully it's not a year. Um, but, uh, I think there's something useful about, as I say to my students, just noticing what you notice, because there's all sorts of, um, anytime that something happens and we don't have a ready set way of, looking at it. We don't have received ideas about it. Um, I think we come closer to what it is that we really think about things and it, life becomes more of a philosophical exercise. So um, that part of it, I do find uh, very interesting. Yeah. So look up, keep your eyes open, keep your yeah. eyes open. And if you want, if you want a little more obligatory note of hope of, I did make an auxiliary uh, website to go with my book. And it's called that obligatory note of hope. And one of the things in it is tips for trying times where I sort of um, rummage through uh, other moments in history that were uh, very difficult and um, and took things that I saw that were inspiring that people did. Uh, and so there's quotes from that. I think I'm going to add a few that are more pandemic specific. Um, <laughs> anyway, if you're curious, uh, you can take a look at that. Oh, thank you so much, Jenny. It's been really, really great to speak to you. And I really appreciate you giving me the time all over as you're over there in the States and uh, I'm stuck over here in the UK. So thank you for that. Yes, I hope to meet you in person one day. Okay, that I'm taking that's a verbal contract. Okay, I'll we'll, take you out we'll for a drink when I come. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jenny. Thank you so much. So this is the point at which I would usually say I'm back in the studio with Holly. But um, Holly and I are both working from home. Hello, Holly. Can you hear me? Hello, I can. This is absolutely amazing. This is the the power of technology. We're talking through wires. It's blown uh, my mind. It's a bit weird. How are you doing, first of all? Yeah, I'm fine, actually. Thank you. Um, I'm glad that the weather has cheered up, actually. I think that's definitely going to help over the coming weeks or months, that now the sunshine is out and everything just seems a bit brighter. It's all a bit peculiar, isn't it? It's very, very, very peculiar. It is, as you say, it's nice to see the sunshine outside, although, uh, I mean, I suppose we have to take it whilst we can and get some fresh air. I don't know when this goes out. I don't know where we'll be at in terms of lockdown, uh, but it feels like, you know, it's important to get a bit of outside time, isn't it? Otherwise, you go a bit crazy. 
Yes, of course. I went for when I woke up this morning, I went out for a walk just around the village, went through the fields um, before I sat down at my desk because I thought I need to at least get some fresh air while we still can. It's very important. And what did you think of Jenny Offal? How fantastic is she? Oh, she's a genius. (laughs) A word sometimes misused, but I think in her case, most definitely not. Um, She was so smart and funny, of course. In fact, after we finished recording that, we carried on talking for about another half an hour because we couldn't really shut each other up. Um, (laughs) She was fantastic. Um, And uh, I think that sort of note of hope that she struck, it does feel like there's an opportunity here to, to help each other and to actually make things a little bit better after all of this has mm-hmm. gone. Um, I think there's something about confronting fear and then and turning it into a, an opportunity to, to make things better, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're seeing that if we relate that to current situation. I think we are seeing that so much more communities coming together, helping people out. And that was before I think there was even a bit of pointed guidance from the government. People are doing what they can to help relatives, neighbours, friends, family, anything they can do. It's it's really nice to see. It certainly is. So we are we are going to be confronting this theme of fear uh, in, in two different ways as we go through the podcast. The horror, thriller and crime genres are well practised at provoking fear in readers. But how exactly do writers go about translating that sense from words on the page to thoughts in a reader's mind? Rosamund Lupton knew just the right buttons to push with her latest novel, Three Hours, which, as the title suggests, plays out the consequences of a school siege over a set timeline, which had readers turning pages with increasing trepidation. I started by asking her about the book's inspirations. I think it came from an image of hiding, and I think it's because I've always been very frightened as a child playing hide-and-seek. I actually hated it, the idea of being found. And I looked at that in a different way, as if you were really hiding um, and something was really dangerous. And I had this idea of a pile of books against a library door, barricading it. And I liked the idea of culture, of fiction being a literal protection against violence. So it started with those. And there's all sorts of other things I was interested in. But that was the kind of almost physical reasons for me, for me writing the book, exploring that. And then creating a thriller which is told I mean, effectively in real time. It is told in real time. And the, yes, I wanted the reader to be really inside the story, uh, not just going, oh, that must be very frightening, but actually to almost be living it with the characters. And I thought was quite interesting when I was writing, and I think the readers find this too, is that for the captives inside the school, um, so there's a gunman and he's got these captives, and time goes really slowly if there's a gunman on the other side of the door. A minute seems to last forever. He has a cigarette, and how long is that cigarette going to take? And what will he do? And time crawls along. Whereas for the police who know they've got this terrible deadline to get everyone out alive, time goes much too fast. And there's actually this police officer who's a psychologist and she sees time, always used to be digital, and now she sees it as an hourglass with time going through. And it's almost like she can see the minutes that she's wasted in not getting to where she needs to get to. So I hope the reader almost also experiences this kind of slow, kind of where everything feels increased, every physical sensation. It's like mindfulness gone bonkers. You (laughs) You are so aware. You are so aware of your body and what's happening. Every sense is on heightened alert. And then you go to the police that are desperately trying to find out what's going on and, it's, and social media is involved and there's counter-terrorism and it's a completely different kind of environment. So outside the school, everything's getting very big um, and inside the school, it feels like everything's closing down and getting more claustrophobic. And I think with fear, I was using your senses in a way that I think intensify when you're afraid. So every sound is louder. Um, the smell when you have that cigarette is much stronger. Um, tiny details you notice. 
Um, if you're frightened of the dark and you have to hide in a dark place, it's terrifying. So it's a very much more concentrated experience. Um, so I, I hope that I kind of drag the reader into that. Um, I, I was thinking before we, we talked about fairy tales, and again, I was obviously a very frightened child because I was also scared of them, but mostly about, I think, Hansel and Gretel and that, that witch that was going to eat them. Mm. But also seeing the gingerbread cottage and just thinking, oh, how lovely, you almost salivate, you almost think, mm, delicious, and you're using that taste. Um, and then Little Red Riding Hood, you know, the, the clues in the, in the title, the red cape is such a striking visual image, and it kind of pulls you inside. And I think with grown-up stories too, you can do that. You, you choose details, and you, you kind of get people's senses involved. Um, I know that I remember reading about a play that was really successful in a small theatre because everyone could smell the burning toast and then they did really well and they moved to the West End and no one could smell it anymore <laughs> and it, it just didn't do nearly as well and I, I think in a book you're trying to cheat people into having those senses it's, or it's like the music in a film yeah. which, which kind of gives you that, that kind of feeling it's not a description of what's happening, it's a real feeling and I try to create that in the book it's a far more intimate experience, I suppose, isn't it? The relationship between the, the author and the reader. You mentioned there about yes. time passing sort of in, in different ways. And I think people understand the idea of a real-time thriller with a TV series like 24, yeah. which you can see the clock exactly. counted down. Whereas, of course, people do read at different speeds. But you're playing with that whole idea of how fast time actually yes. passes. And actually, you know, you, it is longer than three hours to read it. So if you've got a long train journey, it's fine. It will last you the journey. But mm. it's it's effectively three hours. And I think that... Um, I was doing it, as I say, to really empathise with the characters, which I think 24 on TV did really well as yeah. well. I think there's something about it that you're just inside that story. Um, I did a, I used to be a screenwriter, so I'm quite used to cutting between different things happening, which I do a lot in this book, these various points of view, you know, the police officer, the teenager, the headmaster who's wounded. Um, so that kind of keeps the pace going as well. Um, I did a, and also a screenwriter had to do scene breakdowns. Mm-hmm. It's just how you wrote. And so for this, I did a scene breakdown, which was a 30-second or one-minute scene breakdown of where every character was. And my first draft, I was like an hour over. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> so I did it again. I think I get about five minutes over, which I think is okay. I think yeah. at the end, it gets a little bit... I know. think we'll forgive you five minutes. I think that was all right, yeah. yes. I mean, I, reading the book, as you say, you're, you're chopping from one uh, place to another, and it seems to me that that must have been a huge technical undertaking. Did it mean that you had to work out sort of each individual character's journey and in terms of plotting out when you would go to different people. That, I'm yes. imagining post-it notes all over a yeah, wall there was, there was a lot of, there's a lot of, I, my, my kitchen table was actually just covered in pages. Yeah. Um, yes, there was. I, I wrote the stories and then I interleaved them. So that was quite challenging. I also know that for a reader, you don't want to leave a story at the most exciting bit, which is something you do in TV, but I don't think you do that in a novel. Mm. So you'd get a character to somewhere, not of safety exactly, but you knew they weren't in imminent danger, and then you would move to someone else. And you, So I'd, I'd write it like that. So I did sort of have empathy with my characters and the reader. Mm. I didn't want to be too cruel. <laughs> um, it's interesting using different locations. The school set in woods. Mm. So I have the, you know, going back to creating fear, you have the, the fear that you're in a, in a shed and it's dark and it's very claustrophobic and even the school library feels claustrophobic but then you've got the woods mm. and I think that the fear of not knowing who's out there too it's in a blizzard um, you don't know who's behind you you don't know who's following you so I create fear of the outside in a slightly different way from fear in the inside I, I mean I think the fear is really the gateway to what's really interesting and what's really interesting for me in this book is the different ways that they that characters understand love or or it intensifies 
and community and the strength of that community, which leads to huge acts of heroism. So it's, it's kind of fear plus love, if you like, or plus community leads to astonishing acts of courage. And that's what I was really interested in. Um, and that's really where the story's going. It's not dwelling on, oh, isn't it terrifying? It's more, okay, these people are right now, what are they doing? And I look at the different ways people behave. And it's also not exactly stripping away, because that sounds reductive, but characters discover things about themselves they never would have known um, had this not happened. And characters also discover that the love for someone they had is different. So I have a teenage girl who's got a single parent dad, and she thinks they've been really drifting apart, she's got a boyfriend now. And stuck in the library and very frightened, she hears her dad's voice in her head. And she realises they haven't grown apart at all. Um, there's a mum of a missing teenager and she thought she'd be really jealous when he gets a girlfriend and really want to hold on to him when he goes away from home. But actually she realises that she wants him to do all those things and her love isn't possessive and grasping. Um, and there's this kind of incredible romantic love as well. And I think the main thing, I think, is that this communities of a school come together and behave just just kind of breathtaking for me when I was writing it and I kind of let the characters do their thing a lot of them very young and I was kind of countering the snowflake idea yes they're frightened but they're also very brave and you can have mental illness and still be very courageous that that was important to me there's a deputy head with depression and he kind of listens to the gunman's footsteps and he thinks that was the sound of my depression but now it's real and it's up to me to do something and he does and he's really heroic and selfless so that's sort of where the fear led. It was to explore the other extreme of humanity, if you like, of what we're capable of. I read Three Hours uh, at the beginning of the year and it is absolutely terrific. It is so pacey and probably one of the best thrillers I've ever read. And that sense of the heightened senses that she talks about, how the whole situation is intensified through only the three hours that she is writing about, it's just perfect. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I've heard so many people absolutely raving about that book. And it's sort of, I think, uh, you know, that thing of like 24 on TV, that series where that real time element, and obviously because the, the, the book isn't quite real time because it will take you longer than three hours to read it. But that sense that it is happening as you're reading is, it seems so simple actually when you say it, but a, a lot of thrillers actually aren't written that way. And I think she's done something very special with that book, clearly. Yes, completely agree with you. It, and I liked how she talked about how she had written all the individual stories, laid them out on, I think she said her kitchen table or something, and then muddled them in together so everything was intertwined in real time. Yeah. It's such a fantastic way of composing composing that timeline. Loved it. We move away now from fiction into the all-too-real world of extremism and terrorism. Researcher Julia Ebner was thrust into the foreground when she was confronted by Stephen Yaxley Lennon, known as Tommy Robinson, during one of his social media live streams. Her book, Going Dark, The Secret Social Lives of Extremists, sees her going undercover to research neo-Nazis, jihadi brides, trad wives and ISIS. I began by asking her about the impact of that confrontation with Tommy Robinson, hate campaigns on social media and where her undercover work led her. I think the, the long-term effects of that really had a psychological impact on me as well because they it was not just in the moment after Tommy Robinson live-streamed that confrontation in the Quidium office to his, at, then, at that point, 300,000 um, followers on Twitter uh, that, of course, a huge hate campaign kicked off with threats against me, death threats, um, violent or sexual threats as well. 
but it was also that I then worried every single time I published something or every single time I did something new that might upset extremists, that this might um, kick off again. And then there were, of course, quite a lot of um, threats against politicians, but also against journalists, against political activists and even researchers. And some of them um, did translate in actual violence. And that's what, um, yeah, I think is worrying an increasing number of people in different professions. But it's also really important not to give in to that fear or to those intimidation campaigns, because that's in the end what they're looking for, uh, people stopping their jobs someone really even an average Facebook or Twitter user just um, says something that upsets them or criticizes the far right for example at the wrong moment then there might be a huge um, hate campaign that that is kicked off and that really targets that account or that person behind the account because that's often what people who then take part in these hate storms what I realized being inside some of the of also some of the um, yeah the intimidation campaigns or the, the teams that organize some of these campaigns was that some people just forget that there are real humans behind these accounts. And that's also what um, gives so much traction sometimes to these um, hate storms. In the case of the trolling armies, I'd say that there is really quite often a very strong element of gamification that drives a lot of very very often very young members into participating in those kind of hate storms or even disinformation campaigns. It's so very often the leaders of those um, closed channels or chat groups would uh, set incentives by, for example, structuring the group in very strict, almost military-like hierarchies where you can gain points. It's all almost orchestrated like a video game. And you can gain points if you do a particularly good job at um, targeting a political opponent, for example. Or if you, yeah, um, it's it's quite, I found that quite interesting. But then there's also that sense of, it gives some of the people um, a sense of community, being part of something bit bigger, being able to impact politics because they can see the effects they can have in terms of changing attitudes, changing even behavior, intimidating people. And that gives them a sense of empowerment. So it's very often individuals who feel powerless or who feel that they need some kind of recognition. Again, sort of social media, online um, interaction can make people feel very safe often because they're not really shouting abuse at somebody face to face. It's very easy to write something online because you don't have to look somebody in the eye. But you have also looked at how people then move from the offline world into the into the real world and where terror becomes something that's actually acted out that's quite a different thing isn't it? it it's quite a big leap isn't it i suppose from one to the other it isn't it isn't because um but that's what i was really interested in because often when we talk about the online space we talk about it or extremism and radicalization in online spaces we talk about it as if it was a black box where all of a sudden people become radicalized but um it's really important i think to highlight the the lives or the social dimension the human dimensions within some of these even online spaces and um, often the lines become so blurry between what is still considered a game, what is still kind of just seen as part of the online um, interactions and what is actually impacting real world life and, and, and in general the offline world. Like terrorist attacks and, and trolling have become so kind of intertwined now with the latest terrorist attacks where a lot of gamification elements were used in New Zealand, but also then in the attacks in, in the US and in Germany most recently, where some of the individuals reacted to that um, when they heard about the news, they just didn't really know what to make of it. They, they, in the beginning, they thought it was still a game. 
The perpetrator, he used exactly that kind of trolling language, the insider jokes. He put a lot of um, pop culture and satire elements. Um, he used a lot of humor in, in the actual act of terrorism that he live streamed in both the live stream video, but also the, the so-called manifesto that he posted online. And that's what some, some of the individuals had seen, these kind of posts and messages um, a hundredfold in some of these forums and couldn't really recognize that this was now an actual terrorist act. In the short term, I think I'm, I'm quite pessimistic. I do think that um, some of the, the phenomena that we're seeing right now are still going to exacerbate. And especially the the skillfulness of extremist groups across the ideological spectrum of using social media, of using new technologies is quite remarkable. And I think that will we still see a huge um, lag in terms of the policy responses and also in terms of the, the cap capabilities of the security services to um, be more proactive about countering that threat. But in the long run, I do think that we'll manage to um, to get it to get the whole problem under control. I think it's a bit like with any innovation that we've seen in the past. There is it can create chaos, and we forget about what it what technology does to to us as society sometimes, um, and that there might be a period of yeah of just uncontrollable consequences. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. But I do think that we'll be able to implement um, policies that deal with the problem and that also civil society will find a way of, of countering it on an individual level, of being informed enough about what kind of manipulative techniques are used and um, to, to protect themselves from being manipulated, radicalized or intimidated. That was also the goal of the book, to really expose these tactics to, um, yeah, to kind of give people the, the information needed to, to protect themselves. Having the knowledge must be coupled with some form of civil courage and that actually fits the, the topic of fear because I think fearlessness is the only thing that we can um, or is, is kind of the answer to the problem because what we're really seeing with terrorism, with extremism is a cycle of fear. Terrorism has both its roots and also its consequences in fear and so I think um, standing up to that and not being intimidated uh, by any kind of extremist campaigns, by acts of terrorism, is really the answer uh, for on an individual level. I mean, on the civil society level, that's really what everyone can contribute to the problem. So at this stage in an episode, we would usually go around the country and speak to our booksellers to get their book recommendations based on this episode's theme. Now, of course, our bookshops are closed. And so Holly and I are going to step in now, booksellers in our own right, to recommend books based on fear. Holly, do you want to go first? Yes, of course. So I thought I would bring a bit of an optimistic twist to fear and turn it into hope today. And I want to be talking about The Boy, The Mole, The Fox and the Horse, which was our book of the year from last year at Woodstones by Charlie McKeesey. And it's a very simple story of illustrations featuring four characters, a boy, a mole, a fox and a horse, and how they interact, have their own personalities and characteristics between them. And each illustration gives its own idea and positive outlook on friendship and support and care. And I actually opened the book to find one of my favourite quotes. And it just happened to open on a page which says, What is the bravest thing you've ever said? Asked the boy. Help, said the horse. This is very apt for right now, isn't it? People... Yeah. Uh, pretty bad at asking for help, but I think right now, if you need help, ask for it. I think there are whole communities, especially close neighbours in you know wherever you live, who are trying to help people who need it. 
um, in whatever way that, you know, they might need it. And uh, sometimes you have to actually reach out and ask for the help in the first place, which is hard. But yeah, good, good, wise words, Holly. Thank you. Thank you. Who knew that wisdom would ever come from me and not you, right, Rob? <laughs> <laughs> I'm my recommendation is is absolutely I'm afraid based on fear but only because I I don't often get scared when I'm reading books I think that's really quite hard to do um but there is one book that genuinely terrified me when I was reading it to the point where I actually didn't want to turn certain pages because I was worried about what might be on the other side uh, the book is called House of Leaves by Mark Z Danielewski and it is an extraordinary book it's gigantic uh, and the simplest way to describe it is that a man whilst doing some measurements of his house realizes that the inside measurements of his house are bigger than the outside measurements of his house which of course doesn't make any sense so he starts to investigate and i will say no more than that except to say that what uh, Danieleski does in this book is to use text in a way that I hadn't seen before in a book and he allows the text to warp and change as you're reading through the book and it becomes very much the architecture of the story and that's why I say I was scared to turn pages because there are moments when you feel like you are literally about to fall into a deep dark hole or you're about to come around a corner and you don't know what is around it and that's why I was actually I mean, properly scared, thinking I'm. I don't. I don't want to turn the page because I don't want to know what's around the corner. It's a real. It's a really impressive achievement, and um, I've I've read a few books I think since, but he did something really clever with text in that book, which which a lot of people have copied since. But yeah, an amazing, amazing book. So do check it out mm. if you fancy a proper literary scare. Um, Holly, we have to scare some. Uh, Holly, we have to sort of confront something that I'm a little bit scared of now, um, which is some sad news, which is that you're leaving me. I know, I'm so sorry. This is our last episode together and we're not even in our studio. We're in our I own know. little rooms at home. We don't even get to hug it out properly. Not that we could hug it out. Not that we, we would anyway. <laughs> exactly. Social distancing and all that. Um, Holly is off uh, to Pastures New. So uh, I have now successfully killed off both of my podcast co-hosts. <laughs> Uh, which was my plan all along. <laughs> oh, um, I, I'll be very sorry to see you go, Holly. I hope you've enjoyed being part of it. Oh, it's been great. Thank you. And it's, uh, yeah, it's been really, really special and a lovely way to spend time talking about books, which is what we're all here for and what we all love. There will... So, sorry, I would just like to say a massive thank you to the booksellers as well who send in their recommendations weekly and who are just the absolute foundation and support of everything that we do they're wonderful i couldn't agree more they've been absolutely fantastic and obviously right now have been through a really tough time so we're wishing them all of the best um we will of course be continuing with the podcast and in fact i may have said at the beginning that this is the final episode of this season but we have a bonus episode coming next week. You see, you don't miss an opportunity to speak to podcast superstars Jesse and Lenny Ware from Table Manners. So when they came in recently to launch their cookbook, I got them in the studio together with some delicious cheese and a cheeky pastry or two. And that episode will be coming next week. I will be continuing to record... Uh, more episodes in the future it will be just me and probably just one author uh, but I'm hoping that we're going to be able to tackle some really interesting topics and hopefully some real positive ones as well we want to talk about kindness we want to talk about how loneliness can be so uh, debilitating for people I'm going to try and put some very positive vibes out there so Holly I hope you'll be listening 
Of course. Wouldn't miss it for the world. And I hope uh, all of you listeners will be listening too. As I say, join us next week for a special Table Manners episode uh, and then stay tuned on our social channels for more episodes as they come along. Holly, take care, my love. Hopefully see you soon. Yes, thank you. And I hope as a direct result of me leaving, your listener numbers skyrocket. (laughs) (laughs) Only time will tell. Let's hope it doesn't do the opposite. See you soon. Bye. Take care.